I'm going to need to pray before we get started. This is a heavy lesson today, but it's my hope. Um, this, these, these chapters actually changed my life quite a number of years ago, and I, it's my hope that that might happen for you as well. So let's open our hearts. I'm going to tell you, brace yourself, but let's open our hearts to hear what um, we might hear from God today. Lord, I, I do ask that you would uh, help us know you, maybe not the the God we want, but the God who is and the God we need. I'd ask that you would help us remember our past as to try to maybe see how this story might be part of your story for us. I'd ask that you would help our hearts be open, that our minds would be attuned and our wills would be moldable and vulnerable to take the next step we need to in our love and our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time together in the United Kingdom, we saw a bread and cheese delivery boy save a whole nation. While King Saul and his army are cowering behind rocks under trees for the 40th day in a row, 40 consecutive days, the giant comes out and taunts the God of Israel. And last time we were together, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we saw that teenage shepherd bending down in a stream to get five smooth stones. If you knew what you were looking for, you could see that that wasn't his first time at being the underdog. You could tell he was just medium speed. He knew what he was doing and how to do it. He was thinking this. I need to get on with this. It shouldn't take long. Then I can get home and put the sheeps back in their pen, and I won't get in trouble with Dad. Let's go. He faces the giant, and he says this. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of God Almighty, the God of the armies, whom you have defiled. And he has handed you over to me, and I will kill you, and I will take your head, and we will feed the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field so that all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. And then he went after that giant, and he did what he promised. That's chapter 17. The summary of chapter 17 goes like this. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, not a sword, was in his hand. He struck that Philistine down and he killed him. That's 1 Samuel chapter 17. Oh, we love 1 Samuel chapter 17. Look at us. We're still talking about David and Goliath. That's a good chapter. No kidding. <laughs> chapter 18 is pretty good too. Chapter 18, it continues the story of, of David's ascent. Here's the theme of most of chapter 18. It's everybody loves David. Almost. Almost. Six different times, the narrator of this story is going to show us the speedy ascent of David's popularity. It's going to talk all about how much everybody loves David, almost. And it starts at the top. It starts with the son of Saul, Prince Jonathan, the, the heir apparent, right, the, the crown prince. Jonathan loves David. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 4, and says, And David finished telling the story with Saul, you know, about him killing that giant and all. And Jonathan became one with him in spirit with David. 
and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David, and, and, he, and with his tunic, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. I'm not sure how much he's wearing at the end of this thing. But, friends, if you, this is way more than Jonathan, the, the prince, knighting David. This is Jonathan in the first of three times where he's giving him his crown. Because Jonathan, is, he's not threatened by David, and he knows that the Lord is with David. And this is the first sign of Jonathan's love. This, this is a unique love, and so the very, again, everybody loves David. And the, so the very next verse is all the people love David, and the military loves David. And wherever Saul sent David, David, David uh, did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. We'll call him General David from now on. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers. All the people love him. All the military loves David. Next verse. The women loved David. Of course they did. Verse 6. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. It's a great parade. And then someone writes a song and everything changes. Everything changes with these lyrics. Then it happened. And as the women danced, they sang this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. If your eyes are the window of the soul and we could zoom in on this, the face of, of Saul and see into his soul and spirit, we could see at this point he has given himself over to envy and rage. Envy, oh, it's the greatest of all vices. There's no upside to envy. There's no pleasure attached with envy. It is a cancer that is fast and effective. Here's what Saul does with that lyric. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me, only thousands. What more could he get but the kingdom itself? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. It's never going to be the same ever again. The point of chapter 18, at least this first part, is to show you this, that more and more people love David. And with each additional person that loves David, Saul is going to fall deeper into envious insanity. The second thing you're going to see in this chapter is the more Saul tries to kill David, the more successful he becomes. That should make an insane person especially angry, and that's what happens. Now, listen, this is the key to the whole section, okay? It's all because the Lord was with David. Don't forget that. It's all because the Lord was with David. And so all this, the parade ends. The next day, David's playing his guitar for Saul to soothe the savage beast. And Saul has his spear near him and says, I'm going to pin this teenager to the wall. And he throws the spear at him, misses, picks it up, throws it again, misses him twice. And here's, here's our theme here, 12 through 16. And Saul, after missing him twice, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. 
In everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with David. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Meanwhile, all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in this campaign. Is anybody uh, taking notes or keeping count? You want to total the score? Here's, here's how I, Jonathan loves David. Uh, the people love David. The military love David. The women love David. And now all of Israel and Judah, they all love David. Wait, there's more. Because Saul has a daughter, Princess Michal. And guess what? Yeah, she loves David. Look what it says. Uh, Princess Michal loves David. Uh, now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased with this. And here's why he was pleased. Because he goes to David and said, well, sure, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage, but only if you bring back evidence that you've killed a hundred Philistines. Now, you've seen the pattern of what's happening here. And here's why he wants, here's why he's going to trade this. Verse 21, look, I'll give her to you. And he thought to himself, I will not raise a hand against David, right? I'll let the Philistines do that. He's going to be KIA, right? He'll be killed in action, but he'll be killed. He'll, he'll die a hero, but he'll be dead. We'll give him a little statue, but he'll be out of the way. But <laughs> classic to the story here, David, or Saul tries to have David killed by uh, getting 100 Philistines. He comes back with evidence of 200 Philistine kills. So he comes back and he says, so weddings on Saturday? Hey, can I call you Pops? Pops, can I? So it's not going real well for Saul. Listen, this is what it means when the Lord is with you. This is what it means. This is what it means for the Lord to be blessing you. Good stuff. Look at the extent. Everybody loves David. Well, I mean, almost everybody. I mean, we got one crazy narcissist, but you can't win a narcissist love. Their love is spent already on themselves. So for everybody else, boom, this is what it looks like. The point of chapter 18 is to show you this rapid ascent of David to see how high he climbs so as to make sense of the rest of the book. Because at 18, we see a pivot point that will help explain all of the rest of chapters 19 through 31, the fall of David. Not moral fall, but he's going to be hunted. Everybody likes chapter 17 and 18, and that's the God we want to serve. The problem is, if you stop reading, you'll miss what you could learn about God in chapters 19 through 31. We're going to look at 19 through 21 today, one verse or so in 22. And we're going to learn a lot about God as a result of that. The kind of things we learn about God that we don't necessarily want him to be like, but how he really is. Not the God we want, but the God we need. Here's what is happening at the end. This is the theme of chapter 18. He says, and then when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Oh, yeah. Somebody's going to have to die in this relationship. That's the theme. So after stating, I, I ran out of time to count, but... I don't know how many times it's talking about the the Lord was with David. The Lord was blessed by David. And who is this we're talking about? God Almighty, the sovereign God of the universe, the God of the armies, the king of creation. And now, starting 
in chapter 19, it seems as though that same God is just going to step back and watch what happens. David, David, by the end of this story, in three very short chapters, he's going to lose himself. He's going to trip and fall down six flights of stairs, and friends, it's going to look like God pushed him. He'll have six pillars that hold him up, that make him strong, who he is, and they'll be shattered. That list we just went through, the six different peoples that love David, it's as though someone has gone through that list and scratched each one of those off in rapid succession, I might add. David's life will be forever changed. It's fast. He's high up. He's falling fast. He's going to lose six of these pillars. He's falling down six flights of stairs. And it's all because, listen to this, it's all because the Lord was with David. First thing he loses is his status. Remember, it's General David. He has in charge of a lot of the military because he's so successful at that. Well, he ends up uh, doing um, a maneuver here, and it says, and he struck them, the Philistines, with such force that they fled before him, and everyone was praising David for that. And here's how he's thanked, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 19. And while David was playing his guitar for Saul, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, but David uh, eluded him as Paul drove the spear into the wall. That's spear number three, I think we're at right now. And so David has to run from the authority that he had as, in the military. He went from hero right, to being accused of being a traitor, and now he's dishonorably discharged and, and is an outlaw. And you know why? Because the Lord was with David. The very next verse. He, he runs to his wife's house, right, Princess Michal, and he runs home, and she's up there looking out the window, and she says, I see assassins waiting for you, honey, and they're waiting for sunrise. And if you don't leave now, you'll never live to noon. And so she sneaks him out the back window, and he won't see her again maybe for 10 years. And after he runs for his life, King Saul will marry her off to someone else. When, he gets, when David gets back, he's going to have to get his wife back. And you know why? Yeah, because the Lord was with David. The very next verse, the third pillar, he, lo he loses his mentor. David runs from his house and his wife, he runs to, to Samuel. And when he runs to Samuel, it's because it's his only safe place at this point. And he's going to Samuel and he's saying, hey, listen, the dream that God gave me through your mouth into my ears it's in terminal condition, it seems like to me, and I was wondering if you could resuscitate this. It, it seems like it's 10,000 years ago in a whole different universe where things made sense and God seemed to be in control. Could you lean into my ear and speak the words that you spoke to me the day that you anointed my head with oil? What did you say again? Say it back to me. What did you say? You said you'd be king. Okay. Because it doesn't seem that way. And just then... Saul's spies find out what's happening. Saul sends three detachments of military to take David and kill him. And so David has to run again, and he will never see Samuel again. He won't even be able to attend his funeral. And you know why he did that? Because David killed a loudmouthed giant who was mocking the only God in the universe. 
So the very next verse, he loses, I think, his greatest asset because an entire chapter is dedicated to this. I think the narrator wants us to know this is what really hurt. He runs to, he runs to Jonathan, his beloved friend. He, leaves his, he loses his friend. He goes, he goes to his friend, Jonathan, and he says, listen, can you, can you make sense out of this? Here's what he says. He's arguing here. He goes, David fled from Samuel and then went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What is my crime? What have I done wrong? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? And so Jonathan says, whoa, you know what? You're, I think you're overreacting. I'm going to go take this up with my dad. And here's what he says. He says, uh, Jonathan asks the father, why should uh, he be put to death? What has he done? Here's Saul's re- uh, answer to his son. And Saul hurled a spear at Jonathan to kill him. And then Jonathan knew, that's how he knew, his father intended to kill David. At this point in the story, there is good news. And I think this is the good news. That Saul cannot throw a spear worth a hoot. (laughs) And if he had even mild spear-throwing skills, we would have a whole different story going on here. But this friendship between Jonathan and David, it's so accentuated in the Bible that it is the very definition of friendship. As a matter of fact, I would say, at least from what I understand in sociology about the nature of friendships, that some would say that men with men and women with women have not had this depth of friendship since the Middle Ages in the West. We, you and I, we don't understand the intimacy that's here and the interdependence that these two had. They're combat brothers, and some of you understand what that means because you've experienced it. Most of us have not, but even that is not what we're talking about. It's so much deeper here. And so when they finally get alone and Jonathan comes back with the news, I want you to listen to the passion of all that's happening here as they're having to say goodbye. And verse 41 says, And David saw Jonathan, and he rose up behind, from behind the stone heap, and he fell on his face on the ground and bowed down three times. And then he, they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, You've got to go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Jehovah, saying, Jehovah shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring, forever. And he rose and he departed. This is, this is cutting deep in the life of David. And he, he will see Jonathan one more time in his running from one hideout to another. And that will be the third time and last time that Jonathan will promise him, oh, God is going to make you king somehow. Oh, and he sees him one more time when Jonathan is dead and David does the funeral. But that's all. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord because the Lord was with David. The next verse, the very next verse, the fifth pillar. David loses his faith. He runs from Jonathan. He runs to a place called Nob. And Nob is kind of a priestly little village and the head priest there, his name is Ahimelech. And when, when Ahimelech sees David running up and sees that he's all alone, it says, and he trembled. And he says to David, why are you alone? Where are your troops? And this is what David says. David answered Ahimelech, the priest, and says, well, the king has charged me with a certain matter. And he said to me, no one can know anything about your mission or your instructions. It's a secret spy thing. And so as my men, oh, I've told them to meet me in some certain place. Now, what I need from you, Ahimelech, is some food and some weapons. 
Who is this? Lying to a priest? Lying to the priest? This is the man after God's own heart. That's what we call him. That's what God calls him, the man after God's own heart. And he's lying to the priest of God. And he defended the holiness of God earlier. This is a long way from chapter 17. Where's the hero now? The very next verse. We're at the bottom floor. Sixth pillar. Self-respect. David has to run from Nob, Ahimelech, and realizes that there is no place safe in all of Israel or Judah. Not from Saul. He's too committed to killing him. And so where does he go? But to a Philistine capital. He goes to Gath. Ring a bell? Goliath of Gath. He goes to the hometown of Gath, where, Gath, where Goliath's family lives. Because he's He's confused. And when he gets there, you're not going to believe what's playing on the radio. Verse 11, but the servants of King Achish, that's the king of Gath, when the, king, when the servants of King Achish said to the king, isn't this David uh, the king of the land? Isn't he the one that they sing and they dance to? Saul has killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. That's playing on the radio. And David hears this and figures the only way he can get through this next weekend or whatever, however much time, he goes to verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of the king of Gath. And so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while, they were, uh, while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door to the gate, letting saliva run down his beard. Everything we know about David is gone. Everything that David has ever loved has been taken from him. There is no greater distance between the promise of God that he would be king and acting like a rabid dog on the gates of Gath as he foams at the mouth. He's gone. You want, you want to know when you're rock bottom? You want, I mean, listen, by the way, just to make sure you're clear, rock bottom, not because of your choices, not cause effect, not karma, not goes around, comes around, because the Lord is with you, right? Because of righteousness sake. Here's how you know you're rock bottom, is when you're acting like a rabid dog at the gates of the enemy. <laughs> this is David the giant killer. Do you see why people love chapter 17 and 18 and they never seem to get past to these other ones? You can go across the parking lot. I bet they don't talk about that in the children's building. Huh? No one's talking about 19 through 22? Uh, little veggie tails or the cucumber? Does, does he claw at the gate? Does he foam? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> right? This isn't the... Because this isn't the God we want. This is the God who is. This is the God we need. So the very next verse, we're in chapter 22, and he's in a cave outside of Gath, and he's hiding out there. It's called the Cave of Adalon. And he is broken. And he writes in his diary this, Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to Jehovah. With my voice I plead for mercy. Where are you, Jehovah? I pour out my complaint to him. I tell him my troubles. I look, look to the right and see. There is none who will take notice of me. No refuge remains in me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5, 
Here's what the cave is about. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. You are all I have. And that might just be fine. He says, I cry out because I have been brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of this prison, and I will give you thanks. David's doing a 10-year prison sentence here for a crime he didn't commit. He's there because the Lord was with David. That's why he's there. That's why he's in the cave. What's happening? I mean, can you make sense out of this? Can someone make sense out of this? This, <laughs> this is his favorite. There's a lot, I know, especially with, this is a pretty intelligent audience, and I, I want to warn you. There's a lot of things in life that you don't want to try to make sense out of. If you, if you, if you can make sense of what God is doing, then the God, then God must be within the boundaries of your mind. And that's not a good thing. Let me say that in probably a clearer way. If you can understand God, then the God you're talking about is understandable by you. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot of mystery to God. I think there's a fair amount of things that God does where I don't think he cares if we understand or not. First, he doesn't need our permission, but we're so, you know, it's kind of like teaching a parrot how to play chess in some respects. This is not to be understood. But what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together is to speculate, if you don't mind. I'd like to entertain uh, history. I'd like to learn some things maybe from the sages of the past that may have speculated on how saints end up in caves, patterns maybe even some experiences that I've had. Here's what we might conclude. Not conclude, but might speculate. This is what Elizabeth Elliot said. She's quite the saint. She said, this is where faith begins, in the cave, in the wilderness, right? It's when, when you're all alone and when you're afraid, when things don't make any sense, then faith kicks in. Here's a great quote. I think this is going to be our lesson today, okay? This is from Miles Connolly. He says, the cross is the gift God gives his friends. Let's make that ours. The cave is the gift God gives his friends. Let's, let's get Episcopal. Why don't we all say this back, okay? The, the cave is the gift God gives his friends. God's a giver, isn't he? Oh, we know that about God. He's generous, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He is famously generous. He loves to give, could I tell you? He loves to give caves. He gives them out a lot. There is a pattern. The people that love him the most seem to do a lot of time in the cave. You could, I mean, I don't know where you want to start, but certainly Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, right? Clearly, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was given a, a dream by God that he wanted to make sure that he understood, so he gave it to him twice. And the, and, the, and the dream was a God dream. And where did he end up next? He's in a cistern. His brothers throw him in a, in a well. A cistern is a cave going vertically. It's, it's a cave. You should go and see them. They're, they're a cave. And from there he goes to 
slavery, and from there he goes to prison, which is a cave. And it was in that cave that he sat, and it was okay eventually. He could sing, How Great Thou Art. He could sing, I cry out to you, O Lord. You are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. You are my refuge. You are my portion in the cave. Elijah, some of you know that story. Elijah, he confronted a crazy king and a bloodthirsty queen, right, Jezebel? And they sent armies after him, and he runs into a cave, and he wonders, where's God now? And here's the problem. The Lord was with Elijah. And so while he's in that cave wondering, where's God now? He learned a song. He was all alone and alone with God. And he learned how to sing Psalm 142. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord, the Lord is the sa- my safety in this cave. He learned how to sing how great thou art, even in a cave. John the Baptist, he was a cave dweller, wasn't he? Right? He confronted a king for righteousness' sake. He ends up in a Roman prison. He's so confused because he's all alone that he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus, and he says, hey, (laughs) is the Lord with me? Jesus was born in a cave. Think about that. It it is not beneath the God-man to be born in a cave. Did you know he was born again in a cave? Not, the, not Bethlehem, Jerusalem. The tomb. He was born again. And I think that might be a clue to the mystery of caves, that you go in them to die so that you could come out alive. Something is bent in us, and it has to be done with. And so, God, the cave is the gift that God gives his friends so that they might be born again, so that you might find out when you're alone, absolutely, you are alone with the Lord, and he is your refuge in the cave. And you could sing, even in a cave, how great thou art. A cave, it's really, it's just a kiln. Think about that. It's just a kiln. It's an oven. And, you, and you, 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 you're backed in there by God because the Lord is with you. Not consequences. You get backed in there and things get burned off like self-righteousness. Because here's the thing. You can't have the Lord's righteousness imputed. It's a big word, but it means injected into your soul if your hands are filled with your own self-righteousness. And so it's... It's got to go through the smokestack. Right. And what's really funny is if you, if you survive the cave, when you look back in your, in your previous life and you think what was formerly humility, you'll say is pride. And it deserves to be in the ash heap in that kiln. That's where caves are. And you can learn how to sing in those caves. How great thou art. You are my refuge. You are my strength, even in this cage. cave. You know, a cave is like a cocoon. Think about that, a cocoon, right? So we're slugs, meant for something better, and we're ugly, and we're crawling around and fighting for every millimeter, and then we go to this place, this cocoon, where we die, and then we're reborn. 
and we were meant for the skies to fly. But you can't get to the sky unless you go through the cave. It's, the cave is like a portal. It's a tangent point between heaven and earth. It's where God whispers. And sometimes we can hear him in the cave. Right? You guys know, Pascal said it years ago, and we all know this to be true, that we stay busy and distracted so that we can't think about ultimate issues and fears. Well, that might work out there, but busy and distraction, that doesn't happen in caves. And so when God whispers in a cave, I'm here. We can hear him. And we can face these ultimate things and these fears. And we can learn how to sing, even in a cave, how great thou art. I think one of the observations that the narrator wants us to recognize so that we might remember is that oftentimes caves happen very quickly after a great victory. I mean, look at the story, the next verse. Chapter 18 is the ascension of David, and he, you know, in our lives, I'm friends, I can tell you, in our lives, you know, we do something glorious for God. The Lord is with us, and, you know, so that all the world might know that there is a God in Israel. And before our trophy even gets dust on it, we are in a cave wondering, is there God? Right? And the author wants us to know that's, it's a gift from God. That's what he gives to his friends. Can I, let me give you maybe four pieces of help. I want to say advice, but it's probably not advice. It's just maybe four helps or clues on if you're in a cave to, to survive the cave. The first one is that it's all right to be in a cave because the cave is a gift that God gives his friends. And I think if you know that it's okay to be in a cave and for righteousness sake, you can find yourself there, not because of bad choices, but because God is refining you, that's very helpful because that in itself is hope. Let me tell you a story why I love the Bible. It starts with this story. On July 4th, 1982, it doesn't sound like a cave, but that's my first visit to the cave. I was in Newport Balboa Beach, Southern California, kind of the showpiece of uh, the beaches in, the, in, in Southern California on the 4th of July, and I'd been working my way into this cave for several months. And I was realizing there was, an ex- there was a big cost to my newfound faith, and all those bills came due on that morning of the 4th. And I was staring out looking at all these people having fun, and I had never felt so alone in my life. And I didn't know how alone I would be for how long. And I don't do alone well. And the setting sun, it's the first time I I had seen the the sunset on the Pacific. And so it was especially majestic. And I still, when I go back there, I keep going back to this memory. Because it was during that sunset that I heard a whisper. Because you can hear whispers in caves. And it took me back 10 months when I was studying for a final back at UT. And I was looking for the classical station on my radio. And I found this Christian station and there's a guy teaching the Bible. I didn't know that, that even was available. And I just liked his voice. You know, I was, I was like, that guy's got a great voice. And this was his passage. I know the title of the sermon from 1981. It's called, For Cave Dwellers Only. 
And when I was standing on that beach, I felt God say, it's okay to be in a cave, to wonder about, beg for my presence, and I don't have to answer. It's okay to feel all alone because you're not. It's okay to be in a cave. I think the second thing I, that you should consider is to make the most of the moment. I think I went to a really bad meeting because I feel like I've got a timeshare at this stupid cave. And I keep going back to it. And, and when I go back there, I, this is my prayer during my cave dwelling. I say, could we get it all done this time? I swear I pray that. Can we get this finished up? Could, we, could I end all this entitlement and self-righteousness and vanity? Can we just, like, I, I do the same thing. I've had a couple minor surgeries, and if you've ever had that happen, they, you know, they, they bring in a stack of paperwork for you to sign and all that kind of stuff so that they don't get in trouble. And I will say this every time. I'll say, listen, I, don't, I, want, I want to sign something that says, doctor, if you open me up and you see stuff in there, you fix that. You get the hood open, let's go. You could, I want to give you permission to fix everything inside of me if you see something broken. Bring in some friends. Let's go. I don't want to do this again. I do the same thing with caves. Pray, let's get her done. Second or third, uh, you have to hold on to the promises of God, okay? <laughs> if, you, if, you're a, if your faith is based on emotion, you won't survive this. David had the covenants that he made with Jonathan. He had the promises that were given to him by Samuel. That was from God. We have the Bible. Those are our promises. Not hopes, not dreams, God's word. He will whisper to you in the cave, and I know the language he speaks. It's Older Testament and Newer Testament. He loves those two languages. The better you're versed, the more you'll understand. That's why you load up in the spring with Bible understanding and memory verses and pursuing God because when you end up in a cave and your six pillars are knocked out underneath you, you'll be quoting Psalm 42 instead of some bumper sticker somewhere. The last thing, no deadlines on understanding. No deadlines on understanding. David will do at least 10 years. Each year will be a lifetime. And here's why. Because when you're in the cave, this is your verse. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Because while you're in that cave and God is whispering, he will do that. But your ego will be screaming. And this is what your ego screams. When's it my turn? Are we done yet? It's isn't, righteousness isn't working anymore. Let's go to some other plan. There's not enough wine to get you through a cave. That is not the way out. That's going to complicate matters. Don't put a deadline. If you have a deadline, you'll cross that threshold, and then your ego will say, I got it from here. Don't sin. No license for that. David took 10 years to make sense out of this. Samuel, it never did. You know the story of Samuel. Samuel, why do you grieve that Saul is king? He says, get up and go anoint the boy to be my king. So he does that. When Samuel dies, he dies with this vivid picture that a crazy, narcissistic, envious, crazy king is going to kill God's elect. 
and he never sees it happen. He never sees, he never sees the hope of Camelot. But he learns how to sing a song. He sang how great thou art all the way to his grave because he, he never put an end to it. He never put a deadline to it. These are hard words today, but these are true words. This is what it means to live by faith. Let's read it together for the last time. The cave is the gift God gives his friends. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us understand the fullness of what that means, that you would bless us with discomfort, as the old Franciscan prayer goes, we become annoyed with easy answers and half-truths and superficial relationships that we might dive deep into real life, the fullness of life, in a relationship with you and others. God, I'd ask that you would bless us with an understanding of the power of resurrection after a good death. Lord, we submit our lives to you. We submit your will to our lives, that you might lead us to a cave, that we might be all alone but with you, that we might sing that you are my refuge and you are my portion in the land of the living, that we might sing how great thou art. And all God's people said, amen.